Our scripture reading this morning is once again from Matthew chapter 6, and I will read uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. To please stand with me out of reverence for the Lord of our God. And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. to us afresh this morning. Lord, would you help us to get even a glimpse of who you are and of the great privilege that we have to hallow your name. And Lord, help us as your people to do this for your glory. W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? We saw last week that as Christians we have the unparalleled privilege of being able to address the God who is in the heavens as our Father. We can call God Father. And I hope that that comes into your mind when you think about God. We saw that, that God is, is, yes, He is our Father, but He is also our Father in heaven. And so in this, we, we see His, his imminence and also His transcendence. We, we see that, that, that God is near to us, and that He is, is also His other, also other from us. He is different from us. From us. We also see the intimacy that we can have with Him, and we also see the sanctity that is due to His name. 
So when we pray to God as our Father, we are praying with confidence. We're praying with trust. We're praying with, with love. But we're also praying with respect, with obedience, and with humility before the throne of the Almighty God. This morning we're looking at the first petition of the, the model prayer. Hallowed be your name. Jesus is telling us here, not simply to say the words, hallowed be your name, but to earnestly seek that God would be glorified in our own hearts and also throughout the world. That's what it means to pray, hallowed be your name. The Baptist Catechism describes this request saying, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he makes himself known and that he would dispose all things to his glory. We're going to tease out what that means. The Catechism cites Revelation 4.11 that Joshua read for us earlier. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And the 24 elders fall down and worship God before his throne. And it is our great privilege to do this now. It is our privilege to worship God even now. Brothers and sisters, we get to exalt God. We get to exalt God. And again, if, if we just, just get a glimpse of what this really means, we will be eager to run to our knees. We will be eager to, to spend amounts, long amounts of time in prayer, in communion with the Holy God. And may God reveal this to us this morning. May he help us to understand who he is and the privilege that we have to worship him, to hallow his name. But before we consider what it means to hallow God's name, we must understand what God's name is and what God's name means. Now the concept of name was different, as I explained to the children. The concept of name was different in biblical times. It's different from our current understanding. And in our culture, quite often, we're, we're named after a relative or, or named after somebody important. And I, and I know here, there quite often people are named after theologians, and that's a good thing. But it, it, it can, people name their, their children after athletes and actors and all kinds of crazy things. But in biblical times, name meant something different. Name represented something important about who you are. So just think of a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Abraham means father of a multitude. And this is significant, seeing that Abraham was the father of the, the Jewish nation. We think of Moses, which means drawn out of the waters, which, which signifies in part the, the fact that he was saved from the Nile River, but it also points to the, the parting of the Red Sea. His name was, was really prophetic in that sense, as was Abraham's. So God's name, as Thomas Watson explains, is, is his essence. 
It's really anything by which God can be known. As, as a man is known by, by his name, so by God's attributes of wisdom, power, holiness, and goodness, God is known by his name. Thomas Boston studied Deuteronomy 28:58 that you may fear his glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Boston says that God's name is God himself. God's name is God himself, and the name of God is put for God himself. In other words, as D.A. Carson echoes, God's name is a reflection of who he is. God has revealed his name to us and revealed himself to us in his name. His names are part of his revelation to us. The basic word for deity in the Old Testament is El. This word probably comes, or probably has a root meaning, meaning power or preeminence. And sometimes that word is used on its own, like it is in, in Genesis 33.20 or Malachi 2.10. But quite often it's paired with an adjective that describes an aspect of God's character. So we think of, of some common ones like El Shaddai, which likely means sufficient. And it's notably the word that God used when he makes his, his, himself known to Abraham in his covenant in Genesis 17.1. Or another is El Olam, the everlasting God from Genesis 21-33. But one of the best known names of God is, is Elohim. And you see that right there in the very first verse of the Bible, the Genesis 1-1. It's commonly translated in your Bible simply God. Notably, Elohim is a plural form. It's a plural Hebrew word, but it has a singular, singular meaning. So right there in the very first verse of the Bible, we see a hint of the tri-unity of God. Elohim often occurs in conjunction with the name Yahweh, which means I am. I am, and it is rendered quite often in our Bibles, Lord, with a capital L and then a, and then a, a lower capital O-R-D perhaps the most recognizable name for God, and it's also his highest name. This is to be distinguished from another common name for God, Adonai, which comes from the Hebrew word Lord or Master, and, and we see that one in your, in your Bible in the Old Testament. It's quite often capital L and then a small O-R-D. Jews in the Old Testament period held God's name in, in high regard and in accordance with the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 27. This led later Jewish scholars to blend the consonants from Yahweh with the vowel points from Adonai to create the word Jehovah. Jehovah. And they, they did this really in a vain attempt to avoid taking the name of the Lord in vain. As we'll see, taking the name of the Lord in vain is not just about saying a word, or not saying a word. It's about the entire bent of your life. The name Yahweh was first revealed to Moses when he asked God his name in Exodus 3.13. And so let's, let's go there, please. Exodus 3, verse 13. So Moses asked God to reveal his name, and the Lord's response in, in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Again, this is often rendered, you look there in your Bible, Lord, and it's, it's all capital letters, even though the O, R, and D are smaller. I am sent me to you. The Lord is he who is. The Lord is the self-existent one. That's what this means. I am who I am. Given the circumstances in Exodus 3, God is showing Moses and us not just who he is, but he's also revealing his redemptive plan. That he's saying that he will be to them what his deeds will show them to be, especially that he will be with them. Now flip over to Exodus chapter 33. And here is where we see the meaning of, of Yahweh most developed. Verse 18. Again, Moses asks God a, a, a favor. Really. He asks God, he says, show me your glory. And God says that, that I will make my goodness, this verse 18 and following, that I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. But, but God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see, my, shall not see me and live. The Lord told Moses that he would hide him in a rock and cover him with his hand until he passed by. And then in, in chapter 34, the Lord tells Moses to cut two tablets of stone on which the Lord will again write the Ten Commandments. And then and tells Moses to present himself to God on the top of the mountain. And Moses obeys. Read verses 5 to 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Notice how that's written there with all capitals. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will by, all, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So in Yahweh, we see who God is. Do you realize who Yahweh represents in these Old Testament passages? Do you realize who this is? Friends, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus. This is Jesus revealing himself to Moses. This is Jesus who is, 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 is protecting, protecting Moses by, by hiding him in the cleft of a rock and covering him with his hand to realize that in Jesus we see God. And so you could also say that, that the highest name of, of God is Jesus Christ because that's who Yahweh is. And even the name of Jesus means that the, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And Christ is his title. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. So the names of God reveal God's character. But what does it mean then to hallow God's name? James Boyce says that in the Bible there, there are hundreds of names of God and each describes some aspect of his character so that when we hallow his name we are honoring him for who he is and for what he is like. And then I would add to that and imply to this is, is for what he does. This is not merely 
worship of a word. John MacArthur explains that they were not esteeming just the letters in his name. The fact that his name was esteemed meant that he himself was esteemed. What the Lord is teaching us here in hallowing the name is not some mystical attitude toward the term God, MacArthur says, but that we respect God for who he is. The actual meaning of the word hallow is really not very familiar to us in our culture. And that's, I'd say, especially, I think, because it, the meaning has really been, ha been hijacked, through, hijacked through our culture's celebration of, of Halloween. A lot of people don't realize that the, uh, the abbreviation Halloween really means hallowed evening. And it's, it's the evening before All Hallows Day or All Saints Day, which is traditionally celebrated on November the 1st. But it really doesn't mean that anymore in our culture's minds. The word hallowed comes from the, the Middle English term. It's used here to translate the Greek verb, meaning make holy. And this term is, is also, also often translated sanctify. It means to, to separate from, from all that is common, from all that is, is unclean. It means to, to set something apart for sacred use. Now we examined this when we looked at the attributes of God, especially when we looked at His, His holiness. But there's really two senses of, of this, this separation. There is a relational separation and there is a moral separation. This refers to, the, 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 the relational separation refers to God's intrinsic otherness, His unapproachableness. The, the glorious transcendence of God, that, that, that He is, is above His creatures. He is above His creation. He dwells in, in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 16. Paul Washer explains that, that holiness is the preeminent attribute of God and the greatest truth that we can ever learn about Him. He says every divine attribute that can be studied is simply an expression of His holiness and that it demonstrates that he is distinct from his creation, absolutely separate, and a completely different being. So, so that is, the, that is the, the relational holiness of God. But there, there's also the, the intrinsic moral holiness of God. That, that God is completely separate, not just from his creation, but, but especially separate from, from sin, from all that is profane, from all that is unclean. God is, is holy, and God is, 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 turns away from it. Since God is already holy, what does it mean then for us when we pray that his name be hallowed? Well, again, Thomas, from Thomas Boston, he quotes Luke 149, holy is his name, and then explains that, that we are not making God holy, for he is already infinitely holy, and, and he cannot be made more holy. Whatever he is, whatever he says, whatever he does is perfectly holy and cannot be made holy more so. And Boston cites 1 John 1.5 that this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Saying for God's name to be hallowed means that the holiness of his name is manifest. It's declared. It's shown. It's acknowledged. Isaiah 29.23 They will sanctify my name. In other words, the prayer that God's name be hallowed is a prayer that God's name will be exalted. Now, I can list quotation after quotation after quotation from theologians seeking to describe the holiness of God. 
But there's no greater declaration of God's holiness than, can, than what can be found in God's word. And this, I believe there's, there's two proclamations of, of his holiness that stand out in particular. You probably know what they are. We read one of them earlier, but the first is that of the seraphim in Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is echoed in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So God is holy. And God is to be set apart as holy by his people as a testimony. As a testimony to the world. As a testimony to the church. To, as, as a testimony to angelic and demonic powers. And ultimately as a testimony to God himself. So when you pray, hallowed be your name, in, in the full sense of what that means, you're asking that God's name, that God's glorious name, that God himself be set apart as holy. You're praying that God will be exalted, revered, loved, feared, worshipped, honored, and glorified. The Lord is committed to hallowing his own name, and you have the sacred responsibility of hallowing it as well. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And hopefully you know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so in this petition, when you pray, hallowed be your name, you are, you are asking God to fulfill what is required of you. You're asking God to help you to glorify His name and to enjoy Him forever. In fact, really, in the first three petitions of this prayer, that you are, this is really what you're doing. You're showing that the priority in prayer is, is God Himself. It's, it's seeking to render service to God. So by praying, hallowed be your name, by praying your kingdom come, by praying your will be done, you are seeking the exaltation of God's reputation. You're seeking the advancement of His kingdom. You're seeking obedience to His will. You're seeking that God will be honored now as He is already in heaven, as we read earlier from Revelation 4 and 5. So the placement of this petition, Hallowed be your name, here at the forefront of the model prayer, reveals that hallowing God's name is your most important responsibility. It's your, it's your most important duty in prayer, and, and it's your most important duty in your whole life to hallow God's name with all of your, as, as, a, sorry, as a first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So Thomas Watson declares, so I may say of this petition, hallowed be thy name is the first and great petition. It contains the most weighty thing in religion, which is God's glory. This request establishes the foundation and sets the tone for the whole prayer, for the whole of the model prayer. J.R. Packer rightly calls this the biggest and most basic request of the whole prayer. All of the other petitions in this prayer are subsumed under this great head. Hallowed be your name. 
Therefore, our primary duty in prayer, says A.W. Pink, is to disregard ourselves and to give God the preeminence in our thoughts, desires, and supplications. And Pink also warns that when we don't do this, we aren't praying rightly. He says we cannot pray aright unless the glory of God be dominant in our desires. So you realize that without prayer, you can't even fulfill your first duty in prayer. So you pray. You pray, hallowed be your name. You're asking God to help you to do what you could never do apart from His help. You're asking God to help you to hallow His name. You're seeking that, that God will be exalted in your life and, and, and that your, yourself and that your desires will be subsumed and subordinated under His glory. That every one of your prayers, in every one of your prayers, the priority is hallowed be your name. So while people naturally focus on their own desires in prayer, this, this petition means seeking God first and His desires first. It's first your name, your kingdom, your will, and then give us, forgive us, protect us. You're seeking to give God the proper preeminence that is due His name in your thoughts and your prayers and in your whole life. So this petition is a warning against selfishness in prayer, and it provides a correct corrective against that selfishness. In praying, hallowed be your name, you, you can pray about any of God's names, and you can, you can pray about how it reflects His glorious, glorious attributes, asking Him to help you to see Him for who He is, and to worship Him as He ought to be worshipped. You can, you can pray about any of His glorious deeds, and thank Him for, for what He has done, is doing, and will do. You can pray like this. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. You are holding together the universe by the word of your power. That's hallowing God's name. You are the sovereign king. You, you providentially provide for all of your creatures. Thank you for giving me everything that I need. That's hallowing God's name. You can pray, you are the redeeming God. Father, you sent your Son. Lord Jesus, you lived the life I could never live. Holy Spirit, you have caused me to be born again so that the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ will be applied to me, to my life. Thank you, God, for your saving work. This is hallowing God's name. So in praying, hallowed be your name, you're seeking that God's name would be honored in your own heart but also throughout the entire world. R.C. Sproul says it like this, this petition teaches us that we are to regard God's name as holy and to pray, sorry, to pray that our blasphemous culture would do the same. So it's to regard God's name as holy in our own hearts, and to pray that our blasphemous culture would do the same. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we see an example of what it means to, to pray that, that you would hallow God's name under the first petition of the model prayer. Hallowed be your name, that is, it's written here, it says, grant us first rightly to know you, and to sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, 
in which your power, wisdom, goodness, justice, mercy, and truth are clearly displayed. And further also, that we may so order and direct our whole lives, our thoughts, our words, and actions, that your name may never be blasphemed, but rather honored and praised on our account. That's that, that first aspect of, of prayer, of praying this first petition that Scroll was talking about, that God would be hallowed and regarded as holy in our own thoughts, in our own hearts. Notice it's not just saying the words, hallowed be your name, and then being done with it. Now you can pray those words, you can pray, hallowed be your name, but what Jesus is teaching us here is, is not just, just a rote prayer, he's teaching us a model to pray. He's showing us the, what, what the elements should be included in our prayer. These are our principles of prayer that we should consider. And first and foremost, we need to consider, hallowed be your name. So this is, in Matthew 6, 9 to 13, is a model prayer. It is a pattern for prayer. But there's the other sense of hallowed be your name, that our blasphemous culture would also hallow God's name. And Matthew Henry provides an example of what it means to pray this aspect of the first petition. He prays, do this for your great name. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh. And let the word of Christ dwell which richly in the hearts of all. Be exalted, O Lord, among unbelievers. Be exalted in the whole world. Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. So we will sing and praise your power. Do great things with your glorious and everlasting arm to make unto yourself a glorious and everlasting name. So, so these are examples of, of what it means to, to pray this first petition. As you consider who God is and what God's doing, that, that you would seek to exalt Him in your heart and, and you will realize that, that you can't do that apart from His strength at work in your heart. I wonder, have you ever really prayed anything like that? I had to admit that, that as I was preparing for the sermon, I was convicted. When I realized that so often in my own prayer life, I launch into to what I need, what I feel I need, even the needs of those around me, without, without seeking to, to hallow God's name. And so, so it was really upside down in my prayer life. I wonder, does that describe you? Does, it, does that describe your prayer life? Now, I'm, I'm not saying here that, that every time you need to go, you need to pray, that, that you need to, to be, be thinking about that first and foremost, but, but your, your, regular, your regular diet of prayer, your regular practice of prayer needs to be, to be fed on this, on hallowing God's name, so that, that in those times when you, when you call out to God in, in an emergency or in, in some immediate circumstance, you're, you're asking the Lord to help, then, then your mind has been exercised on the fact that, that really even in seeking God's help in that moment, that you are really seeking the hallowing of God's name. And that in, in that circumstance, in that emergency, then, then, then you can actually trust that even if God's answer to that prayer is no, that God's name will be exalted as it works all things for your good and for His glory. But it's only when you're grounded in, in the truth of, of the priority of your prayer life and the priority of all of your life is to be for the hallowing of God's name. 
only then that we will really begin to, to grow in our ability to do that. As we seek Him to do what He promises that He will do. When you examine your prayer life in, in accordance to what God is calling you to in prayer, I trust you'll realize, as I realize, how far short you fall of what God requires. That's true of us all. And our only hope, our only hope in prayer is the gospel. Our only hope in prayer is that Christ died for the sin of failing to hallow God's name. When we realize that apart from God's work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, apart from regeneration, that our entire lives we're bent, we're bent not just on, on ignoring the hallowing of God's name, but, but debasing God's name. Our lives were blasphemous. And our prayer lives, if, if we prayed at all, it had nothing to do with God's glory. But you realize that even now, even now our prayer life does not measure up to what God, God calls us to. So we still need the gospel. We still need forgiveness in Christ. We still need the perfect prayer life of Christ who lived his entire life to hallow God's name. He's the only one who ever, he's the only one who ever loved the Lord as God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He's the only one who ever prayed a perfect prayer. And do you understand that in Christ, your guilt is taken away and that Christ's righteousness, that Christ's perfect prayer life is credited to your account. That is your only hope in prayer. I really believe that as we study these things together, we will grow as a people of prayer. But we will still never measure up to that perfect standard. We will still need the gospel every day of our lives until the day that God takes us home. Our, home, our only hope in prayer is the gospel. But in the gospel, not just did, did Christ die for us, but do you understand that he is interceding for us? Even now, before the throne of God, Christ is interceding for us. He's interceding for you. Jesus is still praying for you. When you pray, Jesus is praying for you. When you wake up in the morning, Jesus is praying for you. When you go to bed at night, Jesus is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is also praying for you. We don't know how to pray for it as we are. Yes, I believe we can grow in this as we learn to pray God's word back to God. But, but even then, we still don't know what God's ultimate will is, but the Holy Spirit knows the will of God, and He is interceding for you, just as Jesus is, is interceding for you before the throne of God. This is our confidence in prayer, and when we focus on this, when we focus on the gospel, all that we've received in Christ, in the gospel, we are, we are impelled, we are compelled to pray. We will grow in prayer. And we'll have a desire to hallow God's name when we understand all who, who, of who He is and all He's done for us in Christ. Let's pray together.